Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. It's 2023. My name's Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joe Wolfon. Happy New Year, Cash. What's going on, man? Uh, lots going on. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, let's see what's going on. You and I are probably the only people in the world that haven't scored 50 points in an NBA game over the last two weeks. Um uh, Zion Williamson is injured again. The Brooklyn Nets have become maybe the best team in basketball. We're going to talk a little bit about all those things, not the scoring boom. We can maybe talk league-wide offense at a later date. I'm sure we'll have all season to talk about that. But the last two things I mentioned, the Pelicans losing Zion Williamson and the Nets are the things we're going to talk about today. So we can start it off with the New Orleans Pelicans, whose new year is unfortunately starting uh, like too many years before. Where Zion Williamson, who had actually suited up for 29 of the team's first 37 games, suffered a right hamstring strain. The team is saying he will be reevaluated in three weeks, which means he's going to miss a minimum of, I think, 10 games is the way I saw it when I looked at the schedule. He's already missed one. Uh, and Brandon Ingram is also still out with a toe injury that has kept him out of the lineup since November 25th. The Pelicans did win the first game without both of them in the lineup uh, against Houston because who doesn't beat Houston? CJ McCollum was really good for them. But if you look at the upcoming schedule and the game Zion is still to miss, they host Brooklyn actually tonight, tonight, depending on when you're uh, listening to this, Friday night. Then they have a road trip that goes through Dallas, Washington, Boston, Detroit, and Cleveland. They come home to play one game against Miami. Then they go to Florida to play Orlando and Miami, come back home to play Denver. That is a pretty tough stretch of schedule when healthy let alone without Zion and still without Brandon Ingram so they are a game out of first in the west they're also only four games clear of the play-in section of the west how do you see this going and can they tread water there's an avenue it's uh not ideal but I mean that's why that's why you build up that kind of cushion you know, that's why it's great that they've gotten off to the start that they've gotten off to where they're actually very close to the top of the West rather than, you know, hovering around the, you know, the top six bubble. Whereas now they, you know, they, they have a little bit of leeway where if they slip, once they get those guys back, you know, they can still go on a big second half push. Uh, but this is the concern with the Pelicans. You know, that was the big thing coming into the year. And even when on a couple, you know, a couple episodes back when you put the the metaphorical gun to my head and asked me to decide who I thought was going to come out of the West. And I really wanted to pick the Pelicans because I think at full strength, they have a very strong case for being the best team. It's just, I, you know, there's a reliability question there that is always going to linger. And, and this is why this is the big concern. So also, well, I didn't put a metaphorical well, gun to your head. I uh, I held the Wolf on Family Fortune uh, ransom. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. Of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think they're... Look, th- this is still a, somehow a top five defense in the NBA, right? So I think if there's a path to them kind of weathering this, it's probably just to lean really heavily on on that identity and you know in in terms of keeping the offense afloat it's like we're gonna see a lot of cj obviously probably try and run a little bit more stuff through jv in the post i feel like his role has kind of fluctuated this year and he's sort of been marginalized a lot of the time and 
in a way that's been understandable. Like they just don't really need him offensively as much as maybe they have in the past. And now they do, right? Like they are actually going to have to lean pretty heavily on him at the offensive end, I think. And so we'll probably see his usage scale up quite a bit. And yeah, I mean, I wonder, like, do they sort of redesign their offense to be more of a, of a post-oriented offense? Or just like, you know, maybe like the two-man game between him and McCollum is sort of what becomes the staple food for that offense, as long as Ingram and Zion are both out of the lineup. And then around that, you just roll with, you know, I think we'll, we'll see more Trey Murphy, you know, like they can run 15 plays a game for him to just get movement threes coming off of stagger screens and whatnot. And then, you know, like more Dyson Daniels, probably more Najee Marshall, more Alvarado. Like that's, that's how you lean into the the defensive identity and maybe just get enough stops to, to scrape by and kind of, like you said, tread water until those guys can get back. Yeah. And I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility that those guys can help them tread water with a defensive identity and kind of just getting enough on the offensive end. Like they do have that depth. They have defensive depth. CJ, you know, is a pretty damn good, like third option when healthy and like, pretty damn good fallback option when your two stars are out to still have a guy like CJ McCollum. One thing I'm interested in seeing and maybe a little concerned is if Ingram comes back relatively soon and maybe gets like a couple weeks with Zion out of the lineup or however long it is and kind of takes over the offense again, which I assume he would do, especially if Zion's out and that would be understandable. I do wonder if there will be any sort of like, not off court at all, not anything personal, but like some on court tension or just on-court confusion or like trying to kind of find themselves within the offense once then they're all healthy. Because the Pelicans really started thriving this season with Ingram out of the lineup. And not because I think they're better without Ingram, but because they finally did start leaning into, you know, the style of play we've wanted them to play for a while now, which is, you know, very Zion-dominated. But then if Brandon Ingram comes back while Zion's out, it's going to be a very Ingram-heavy offense. And then when Zion comes back, I do wonder how they're going to kind of navigate that. Like, will they then be able to go back to that Zion-dominated offense? You know, which I think they would want to do, but does that is that even harder to do when you have to go back to that after Ingram had to run the show again because Zion was out? Like, I feel like more than just the obvious caveat of well like injuries suck like having guys not in the lineup sucks in its own right because you're just not as good of a team I think sometimes people also forget how hard it is to integrate guys again even players this good like it's not as easy as just like okay both their stars will be back and then they'll be good like there's gonna have to be some like on-court massaging that Willie Green um, has to do once they're both back but I guess you know the first thing they're worried about is just surviving this stretch right now getting Ingram back and then eventually getting Zion back yeah, for sure. And there's been, I don't know, some kind of weird cryptic updates about that toe injury where it's just very hazy in terms of the timeline. And all Ingram himself has really said about it is that he'll come back when he feels ready to. And right now he still doesn't have confidence like pushing off of that toe. So who really knows how long that's going to keep him out? I, I I get your point in terms of you know, like him coming back and getting comfortable in a role that they're not necessarily going to want him to play once Zion is there too. I think ultimately, regardless of 
when he comes back, how long he's back before Zion returns. They just need more reps with both of those guys out 100%. there, right? Like that, that's going to be maybe the most important thing between now and the playoffs for them to really figure out is like the division of labor and getting, I guess, just a little bit more fluid uh, in terms of like the on and off ball responsibilities that are being split between them. And like, we've talked about this before, right? I, I don't think that Ingram has, you know, adapted his skill set to be the kind of off ball complement that I feel like an on ball dominant Zion needs him to be. And in order for that partnership to really, really thrive, that's what I feel like needs to happen. So Obviously, yeah, the the more reps that you can get with both of those guys in the lineup, the better. And so far this season, despite how well the Pelicans have played on the whole, they haven't had that, right? They've only had 12 games with the two of them both healthy. And that would be a concern for me, like heading down the stretch. If they just don't get those reps in, uh, I think it does make it harder to get like a consistency of role and by extension, a consistency of offensive identity for the team as a whole. Yeah, and to your earlier point, like these are the questions and concerns we had about them coming into the season. And, you know, we're sitting here now halfway through the season just about with those concerns having popped up and then some. And yet, what, they're 11 games over 500 and top three in the West. So uh, I hope they can keep it up because it's been a good story and they've played really fun basketball and uh, they seem to have, be building on something there. I think their crowds are getting bigger too. Like there's just a lot of good vibes there right now. And it would really Mm -hmm. suck if yet again, the air is sucked out of the building because of injuries. I wonder also, like I'm thinking about how they're going to sort of patch it together offensively. And we've talked, I don't know how many times about the three point volume for them. And that is in part a personnel issue. So you lose Zion who is like he creates a lot of threes obviously with his on-ball gravity right so I'm I'm not gonna say well, you lose Zion and suddenly like your three-point attempt rate is gonna go up um, because that's a really important component of creating open threes is like all the attention that he garners inside the arc even though he doesn't shoot them himself but in terms of like if you're sort of structuring the offense and figuring out how you're gonna make it work just maybe leaning into more of a high variance approach where you're you're really making an effort to like amp up the three point attempt rate with with Trey Murphy just like getting a, a ton of minutes and maybe being featured more prominently in the offense, nudging CJ more toward you know like upping his three point volume. If you're sort of running things more through JV in the post and he's able to draw two to the ball, like can you know his playmaking is so-so at, you know, at best, but as long as he's like able to draw attention down there, you're presumably going to be able to create some pretty clean catch and shoot looks around him. Is that something you feel like they're going to be able to do um, maybe in order to, to make up the deficit in terms of like raw, you know, interior scoring, playmaking, like everything that they're losing from a creation perspective with Zion and Ingram out. Can they can they find a way to make up for that maybe with just like a 
a real huge bump in three-point volume and just play the variance game. So I think they definitely can. Again, if we're just talking about them like trying to tread water, maybe like steal a couple games that you don't think they can win, win the ones they should win. Like I, I definitely think that's a recipe to get there. And I think despite you know the, what I've been talking about for three years with the three-point volume and how that is personnel-based, I also think considering those things, there is actually some three-point talent on like we, Trey Murphy is, you know, almost as good a shooter as anyone right now. Uh, Dyson Daniels can be like a three and D guy. Uh, CJ, obviously it can be like a pull-up threat too. Like there's enough three-point shooting ability there that it's not like you're asking a team who doesn't shoot a lot of threes because there's like, there's no shooters around to now all of a sudden try to play that game. Like they can do it. My concern is more that schedule that I mentioned where like it's hard to see them going better than like three and seven, man. They're like just based mm-hmm. on, especially if both got uh, Zion and Ingram are out, that would be my top concern. And then the second thing I was going to say too, is even though I have faith that they would be able to survive um, playing that kind of variance based style where maybe they are chucking a lot of threes, playing D going through JV in the post. I just wonder like if that's one of those things that it's a lot easier said than done from our perspective and and being like, okay, you've got these injuries now and you kind of have to change your identity and style on the fly and whether it's actually practical to do that on the court, like this deep into the season for the average team. I mean, we've seen teams do it before, but like, I don't know. Do you think it's that easy, I guess, to kind of take a team that's been playing one way all season and be like, Hey, you know what? Like, stars are like this is how we're gonna play and i don't know i don't even know how to answer that question maybe maybe a player would say to us no it's actually not that hard like what we'd figure it out we'd kind of play to our personnel based on who's available every night but i don't know it's i do think it's probably harder done than said yeah no i agree i don't think it's gonna be an easy thing to do uh and even if that was something that they kind of tried to do if there was like intention behind it I don't necessarily know that they'd be able to execute it for the reasons that I mentioned, right? Like you missing that, that creation element, missing that on ball gravity is going to make it that much more difficult to, to create the kind of shots that you want, right? Like that's going to require a lot of creativity, I think. And, you know, not that like offense always require requires creativity, but when you have somebody like Zion who like you can stick the ball in his hands and it's like an auto double team for the most part, then that just makes things a lot simpler. And this way, it's like I mentioned CJ, right? Okay, you would love to see him now just start bombing like 10, 11, 12 threes a game because why yeah. not? But given that he is going to have the ball in his hands so often uh, with Ingram and Zion both out, that makes it a lot more difficult, right? Because, yeah, I mean, you, you'll probably get some looks where maybe he can walk into some pull-up threes if teams are playing drop against him, but I don't know if he's going to see that kind of coverage very often. He's probably going to be seeing a lot of bodies. You know, guys are going to be making an effort to run him off of the arc, and that's, you know, it, it, it's just a little bit easier to do when a guy has the ball in his hands as opposed to, especially like a player like CJ, right? Like you want him in an ideal scenario to be more of like a skittering off ball threat, right? Like you're running him off of screens and you're getting him catch and shoot looks as opposed to I've mentioned this before, right? Like when, when a guy has the ball in his hands a lot, uh, they, they wind up getting nudged into like more pull up mid rangers, I think than pull up threes just because of the way teams defend a lot of those pick and roll actions. So yeah, it's not going to be easy like at all. 
And uh, it's going to take, again, some creativity, some intention, and a lot of focus, you know, attention to detail for the Pelicans to actually pull that off. Uh, I'm curious to see how they can navigate it. And, you know, the more I watch that defense, the more convinced I become that it's, you know, I don't think it's entirely for real. They're not a top five defense in my mind. Are they a top 10 defense? I think that's plausible, especially because, you know, like I was not, not that I hadn't sort of noticed this just by watching them this season, but uh, when Zion went out, I was looking at some of the on offs, right? Because I was like, okay, how are they going to be able to play without him? They're like quite a bit better defensively with him on the court this season. Yep. So given the strides that he's made on that, and especially as an off-ball defender, like his work sort of within the team scheme, I think has been actually really impressive. And the some of the on-ball issues are still there, but I think he's been, you know, in like a net neutral defender, maybe even in some cases a net positive. And that's huge. Like if he can keep that going when he gets back, then yeah, I do think this can be a top 10 defense. And in his absence. I mean, we didn't mention Larry Nance has also missed the last four games. He's been like a really key component of that. So I don't know when he's going to be back. It's going to be a tough stretch that they're just going to have to do their damnedest to survive. But uh, if, again, if like CJ can just have a, a huge week and if JV can kind of put the team on his back with just uh, an enormous, you know, post usage kind of week and they can maintain the defensive intensity and connectivity. There's definitely a universe where they can kind of like go 500, ride this out, get those guys back and just make like a huge push and and stay in that upper echelon of the West. If they do, even though we've both taken issue with how long it's taken him to arrive at certain decisions or conclusions, I do think if the Pels survive this stretch, stay near the top of the West, that Willie Green's coach of the year candidacy will only be bolstered Mm. but i also know uh that it is early january and there is no one who dislikes nba awards talk at the midway point of the season more than joe wolfon so we're gonna take a break we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk nets what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, the Brooklyn Nets, despite a loss to Chicago that snapped a 12-game win streak, have been the hottest team in basketball for a while now. They are 25-13. and 13. They're on pace for about 54 wins, thanks to that aforementioned 12-game win streak that recently uh, ended with a loss to the Bulls. They're tied for the third overall record in the league. They're a game and a half back of Boston for first in the East. Number four offense, number 10 defense, and since... Jacques Vaughn took over from Steve Nash. They're actually top five on both ends of the ball. They have the fifth best defense in the league since November 1st, big chunk of the season. Um, Kevin Durant has been an MVP candidate. Kyrie Irving has actually been just playing basketball and playing pretty well, uh, not really causing any distractions right now, uh, not spreading any misinformation or anti-Semitic content. Ben Simmons, you know, I think 
what's interesting with Ben Simmons is that like he's playing and a, a lot of the issues that you know obviously once kind of dominated all the headlines when it comes to him are still there in his game which we all knew would be but it's really why we thought it would be such a good fit for him in Brooklyn because it doesn't matter in a lot of ways right like he's playing defense um when he's out in transition obviously it's working mm-hmm. he's kind of falling back from the spotlight with KD and Kyrie there, just kind of doing his thing. Nick Claxton is having a great year. Royce O'Neal, I think, has been a really good 3 and D guy for them. Utah Watanabe's, I think, still leading the league in three-point percentage. Seth Curry and Joe Harris are back. Like, this is just a really good team, led by absolute star talent at the top. And, in, you know, KD, obviously, on another stratosphere, even from Kyrie. Do you see anything different since Jacques Vaughn took over where you're like, okay, this is the Nets team that I wanted to see. They're doing things differently. Or do you think it's just, you know, they're probably playing a little harder. They're more focused defensively. And their, you know, top two players have consistently been in the lineup. Like, is that all it is to you? Or do you see differences since Jacques Vaughn took over in play style, defensive schemes, things like that? Um, I mean, yeah, it's really hard to say. Like, I think they are, in general, just running their stuff at both ends of the floor with like a lot more purpose and intentionality. (laughs) Like they're, I don't see a ton of things that they're doing like dramatically different from a schematic perspective, but like I look at the defense and yeah, they like for the last few years, they've switched a ton, but it looks different now when, when you see their switching, you know, like in the past there's been just a lot of, soft switching really passive switching and now i think they're doing it with a lot more activity and like they're getting up into guys when they switch and it's also like it works so much better now and like has so much more bite to it now because in the past i just think that they were very small on the back end of those switches right and so they've switched claxton out a lot because he could do it like he's since he came to the league, been like a really high level switch defender and could really hold his own on the perimeter. But it didn't really matter because they had so little behind him that like him switching out on the perimeter didn't necessarily mean they would get a stop because, you know, Kyrie or like another small guard would be trapped under the basket. And I, they're just like, they're, they're kind of avoiding playing a lot of lineups where there are two small guards out there at once. Like, whether that's, you know, Kyrie and Seth Curry, Kyrie and Patty Mills, like they still do that sometimes, but for the most part, I feel like they're able to put more size on the floor. And now it's like, okay, you can switch Claxton out. And even if he gets beat or the ball swings around and, you know, the opposing team manages to find a seam. I mean, you got KD, Ben Simmons, Royce O'Neal, like a lot of size behind him to still manage to protect the rim and rebound. Although defensive rebounding is still quite a big issue for this team and that's something that maybe we can get into but I I just think in general the the principles make a lot more sense with the personnel group that they have now and honestly like even Kyrie has been giving a whole lot more effort at the defensive end of the floor like he's come up with some weak side blocks in the last few games that have really surprised me and he'll still make his share of mistakes but 
I just think it's it's pretty clear that he has bought in at that end of the floor, and I think that's making a difference too. I hate saying this because usually I'm the one who's saying like there's so much more to defense than effort. Like coaches always talk about effort, but you know there's skill that goes into it too, and attention to detail and all these other things. But effort is a big part of it. I mean, it's a big part of the game in general, and like it's impossible to watch the Nets the last couple months and especially the last few weeks and not see them just straight up playing harder than they were early in the season. And again, yeah, it sounds really simple, but if a team with Kevin Durant and even Kyrie Irving on it is playing hard every night and with some of the defensive tools this team has now too, they're going to be in every single game. When you look at the East and you see Boston at the top, although Boston has really come crashing back to earth, I think they're like 500 over the last three, four weeks or something like that. Um, the Bucs who have been dealing with their own injury issues, they, they haven't really been healthy all year. Like, is there a team that you think right now in the East is definitely better than the Nets? Or is there a team that you think would really be a tough matchup for the Nets in the playoffs? I mean, you mentioned the defensive rebounding issue. Like, I don't know. Is there a team you're looking at maybe whether it's with size, whether it's the way they can dominate the glass, where you're thinking like, okay, that's a matchup the Nets should avoid? Or do you see them as just they're the best team in the East and it's other teams who should be open to avoid them. No, I don't think that they're necessarily the best team in the East right now. Uh, they're playing the best of any team in the East right now. But uh, like you always say, it's a long season, you know, so yeah. they're hot right now, just like the Celtics were super hot a month ago, just like the Bucks were ridiculously hot at the start of the season. All of this is liable to change. And I do think at the end of the day, I still have a lot more trust in Boston and Milwaukee than I do in Brooklyn. And yeah. yeah, if you're talking about the defensive rebounding stuff, Milwaukee is a team that I would really worry about. Uh, they they put a lot of size on the floor. They're really prioritizing offensive rebounding this year in a way that they haven't necessarily done in the past, uh, which is something I actually wrote about today. And Boston can get on the offensive glass too, right? Like Rob Williams is a problem. <laughs> his, his ability to put pressure uh, on the glass. And just in general, I think Boston's defense has what it takes to kind of short circuit that Brooklyn offense, just because even I, I think they're playing really well and they're playing very together on offense right now. Like the ball is moving guys are cutting. I think that's been a big thing with Simmons, right? Like, honestly, I don't feel like him as a screener in the pick and roll has really worked the way that I would have anticipated or, you know, some people might've hoped, but He's actually, I feel like what is working is him as an off-ball cutter, right? Like he's actually taking advantage of um, when when he's getting gapped, you know, like when guys are completely ignoring him off of the ball, like he's finding ways to cut into that space. And when, when KD's getting double teamed, which is often, he can kind of take advantage of that, catch the ball in the middle of the floor. And he's been a little bit more aggressive in those situations looking for his own shot, but he's also able to catch it and like spray out a pass to a three-point shooter. I think he's done well in that regard. Um, but like I was saying, I just think that in terms of uh, like their sort of size across the board, their ability to switch, uh, their ability to play multiple different schemes, like I think Boston can really match up with Brooklyn at the defensive end and then... I, I would still be, I, I think they've addressed a lot of the issues that led to their defense getting completely torched by the Celtics in the playoffs last year. But I would still have some concerns about that defense holding up uh, against a, a high level offense like that at the end of the day. Like that's, 
even apart from like the the Kyrie off court stuff, even in terms of like the on court stuff, I, I still have some questions and some sort of trust yeah. issues. Like the Simmons at five lineups, I I know they've been really successful this year. That's something I still just don't fully trust. I just still don't see him as a good enough backline anchor to actually roll that out there for big minutes. And the defensive rebounding in those lineups in particular has been a big problem. And him and Claxton playing together, which was a real issue early in the season to the point that the Nets basically stopped doing it. They've started doing it again because ultimately they had to, right? Like they need both of those guys on the floor. They can't just like stagger them completely and have them each playing 24 minutes. They're both too important. And lately lineups with both of them on the floor have been really, really good at both ends. I don't know. I mean, can that against a playoff defense of Boston's caliber, this is especially in last year's like playoff series when, when the nets were rolling out multiple non-shooters, like their offense just died. And so that's still a big question that I have is like whether, whether that can work with both of them on the floor. Um, and even like the switching defense, as, as good as I think it's been, like there are ways to exploit it. I think if you watch their game against Chicago a couple nights ago where their winning streak ended, I thought Chicago made a lot of hay slipping their screens and beating the switches that way. There are still questions. I'm not ready to just like crown them as the best team in the East, I guess is the, the short answer. I'd say they're playing the best basketball in the East the last you know month or two, but I still wouldn't call them the best team. And definitely still trust issues there like that a couple months of great basketball cannot wash away i will say when it comes to their defense like and you mentioned how bad their defensive rebounding is obviously that is a big part of defense like you have to close the possession you have to get the ball back but if you just look at limiting opponent shooting they've got the third best defense when it comes to opponents effective field goal percentage the only teams out of them are milwaukee and Memphis. So it, I guess it's very easy for me to say, you know, if they can just figure out the rebounding issues, like this defense is definitely championship caliber, but the rebounding issues are pretty big and they're not exactly easily solved. You know, I'm, I'm tempted to talk myself into them being the best team in the East, because again, like I, th- I think of the ceiling and I, it's like what we're watching right now. And I just think if KD and Kyrie are healthy going into the playoffs and the defense is working like this, why not them? But yeah, the, the trust issues still run deep when it comes to this team. And to your point, I do still see, maybe red flags is too strong of a word, but reasons why they can be exploited in the playoffs, right? Like, um, And I think when you're talking about Milwaukee and Boston, while they're not perfect, especially this season, there's, I don't think, anything close to a perfect team. But I think the Bucks and the Celtics have less holes to fill and less players or things that you can look at in a playoff match and be like, okay, like you can really take advantage of this person or the, this issue with them. That I just don't see that as much with the Celtics and Bucks as I do with the Nets. And those things matter in the playoffs when the margins are so slim. Yeah, and like this is something we'll definitely revisit later in the season. You know, it's not like we're always trying to suss this stuff out because mm. it's part of our job, I guess. But... <laughs> It's just funny, like the, the number of, of sort of like touch points that we have over the course of the season where we're like, okay, let's sit down and let's figure out who's the favorite in the East, who's going to win the West, all this stuff. And it's like, it just inevitably changes, right? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the Nets have obviously pulled themselves together. They're playing 
phenomenal basketball right now. And maybe that just continues. And by the end of the season, we're like, okay, like there's no denying that this is the team to beat in the Eastern conference right now. Um, I just don't think I'm ready to say that yet. And I think at the end of the day, like my expectation would be that we're going to end the season and it's going to feel a little bit like it feels now where you could see any of you know, three or four, maybe even five teams coming out of the East. If things break right, if they get hot at the right time, or if, if the matchups go their way, like it's, this is a season. And last year was kind of similar. I think where the margins between all the top teams are like thin enough that it's, it's really just going to come down to like, which team is healthier, which team is playing better at any given moment. And it's not like last year, the Warriors obviously had a dominant run through the playoffs, but I don't think you look back on that and think that it was like written in the stars that they were going to win. Like the Grizzlies could have beaten them. You know, the Celtics could have beaten them. It's not like the kind of seasons we've seen in years past where it's like, this team is inevitable. I don't think there is an inevitable team in the league right now. Nothing close to it. Yeah. And so that's the thing. Like uh, the, the Nets are a really good team and that, puts them in contention right now because there's no team, you know, running away with, with the league or that looks unbeatable. So they have to be talked about in those terms. But as far as like, you know, saying, no, this is just like the, the best team in the East right now, this is the favorite. I'm, I'm not ready to go there, but I'm not really ready to say that about anybody right now because all these teams have kind of been all over the map. Yeah, and this is something I talked about coming into the year. I made a whole video about it. I think I wrote a column about it too, just about uh, the balance and parity in the league uh, coming into this year. Like whether you looked at betting odds or projection systems, it was the most wide open the league has pretty much ever been. And I think that's now, like we're seeing that play out. It's not one of those things that was just a preseason talking point and then the season starts and it's business as usual. Like that balance and parity is now playing out in real time um, in the games and on the court. I can't remember who tweeted it. It might've been Matt Moore. Someone tweeted the other day that favorite, like just general favorites going into a game, betting favorites um, are winning a lot less of the games. Like the percentage of time favorites are winning has dropped dramatically this season. And again, it's not surprising given what we were talking about coming into the year, Um, but it makes for a hell of a season. Yeah, I mean, we're on pace to have zero 60-win teams, you know, or anything really close to it. So um, that just sort of tells you how bunched up everything is. But I I will say, I think that KD is having maybe the greatest jump-shooting season in NBA history. Does that feel like a stretch? Like, No, dude, have you seen all the charts? You know, like the the charts that... Um, many different outlets and people share now where it's like the kind of best shooters by zone or like most points by zone or heat map by zone. And inside the arc, the mid-range area and the short mid-range area, literally it's KD in every <laughs> single section between the three-point line and like the three-foot range. Yeah. Like it's, it's insane. nutty. So he is taking 16% of his shots at the rim. And in spite of that, his true shooting percentage is 68%. Okay. He's shooting 63% from floater range, 59% on long twos. Even from three, he's like not doing a ton of damage. He's like 37% on low volume, but 
his mid-range shooting is so outrageous that he can have that kind of shot profile and still basically be like, you know, I guess apart from Jokic right now, he's the most efficient high volume scorer in basketball. And that's on a diet of almost exclusively mid-range shots and like floater range shots. And the other crazy thing to me about that, so that 16% rim frequency, that's from cleaning the glass. And that includes shots where you got fouled. So Kevin Durant's getting 7.2 free throw attempts per game. And he's getting fouled twice as often on jump shot attempts as he is on like layup and dunk dunk attempts around the rim. It's uh it's really ridiculous how and especially when you consider that so many of those shots are just heavily contested. And I know with a with a guy who is seven feet tall, like Kevin Durant, like there's only you know, you you can only contest his shot uh so much. But even still, like guys draped all over him. He's making tightly contested shots at a preposterous rate right now. I think, I mean, I haven't done the work to go through and like figure out how that would stack up to other jump shooting seasons in the past. And like, maybe, you know, there's probably some Steph Curry seasons that would compare with it just in terms of overall effectiveness, obviously on a much different diet of shots, but it's kind of insane what he's doing just as a jump shooter this year. And on top of that, playing, maybe the best defense of his career. Like it's rather astonishing what he's doing in his age 34 season after everything that he's been through. Um, It might be like the biggest story in the league right now. And he's playing 36 minutes a game. It's mental. And so that's like, without that, none of this matters, right? Like that's what ultimately great to see them defending hard. Really nice to see them, you know, playing for each other and being connected at both ends of the floor. But at the end of the day, what makes this what makes this work is the fact that Kevin Durant is simply, you know, one of the best players in the world still. And yeah. on any given night can just sort of carry them to a victory, even if their offense just completely breaks down. Kevin Durant having a season this good, like honestly maybe the most complete basketball we've seen play and this is nine years after he won mvp but kevin durant having a season this good in year 16 given all of his accomplishments already would be a story in and of itself like a player that accomplished that old like having maybe a career year at this stage of his career is a story in its own right him doing this a few years after a blown Achilles now in his mid thirties is preposterous and it's a fantastic story. And it's been an absolute joy to watch. Like I know, you know, the common refrain is like cherish, you know, being able to watch LeBron, don't take this for granted. And absolutely you should be doing like, do not take that for granted, especially at LeBron's uh, age and the stage of his career, but also don't take Kevin Durant for granted. Like, Think about it the same way, because while he's a lot younger than LeBron and, you know, we hope he's around for years and years and years, like it doesn't work like that. We know how it works at a, at a certain point. Father time wins. So enjoy the hell out of what Kevin Durant is doing right now, because it is borderline unbelievable and you genuinely have to see it to believe it. One more question for you before we wrap this up with the with the defense stuff. So, like you said, they're 10th right now 
in terms of, you know, not just sustaining it for the rest of the season, but kind of looking ahead to potential pitfalls in the playoffs. At the end of the day, do you trust the interior defense? Because that has been the biggest driver of their success. Like they're doing a good job running opponents off the three-point line. As a consequence of that, they're giving up a ton of shots at the rim. And it hasn't mattered because they've been one of the best teams in the league at defending those shots at the rim. I think they're number two in the league right now at opponent field goal percentage at the basket. And that's been true all season. And Claxton, to me, has been easily the biggest part of that. Like, his rim protection has been outrageous. KD as, like, a help side rim protector has obviously been a big part of it, too. Simmons, I think, has started to come around. So I look at that, and it's like, oh, wow, this is a really good rim-protecting team. It's also a team where I feel like interior defense has been a big question mark in the past. And, I, you know, just maybe I have a kind of aesthetic bias here. But I look at Claxton, and he's pretty slight. KD is obviously quite slight. Simmons, I just don't think, plays up to his size on the back line. And, or at least he hasn't in the past. Like, he's just never been an especially good rim protector. Has always been a better perimeter defender, despite his height. So, I ask you, Cash, do you now trust this team in terms of its interior defense? Like, is that going to sustain itself? Because... I don't know. That might be the single biggest question that I have, like looking ahead to a playoff series against Milwaukee, maybe even against Philly, right? Like, do they have the goods to lock those teams down at the basket? The short answer is yes. I actually do believe that the interior defense will hold up because of the reason, like the names you mentioned and Nick Claxton, Kevin Durant, and even Ben Simmons. Like if those are your three options as backline defenders or interior defense, or at least rim defense, then I think you're fine. That's going to hold up. If they're healthy, I trust the backline defense. The second part of it and the part that I trust less or maybe not at all is if you're talking interior defense more when it comes to actually like matching up with a big post scorer, like that's a different Mm -hmm. question. Matching up with Joel Embiid in a series with the Sixers, do I think they have someone who can do that? No, but there's not many teams that have someone that can do that. Or like That's also the only guy I think that you would really worry right. about in that regard. Like yeah. Brooke Lopez yeah. can do it, but he's not going to do it all that often. Exactly. And, like it's not, and it's not where the Bucks bread is buttered, right? Like going to Brooke Lopez inside the way it is with Embiid. But um, short of that, short of just straight up like, defending a really big score in the post. If you're talking about interior defense more as like rim defense and backline and help defense, that I definitely think will hold up as long as they're healthy. Because I think Nick Claxton, Kevin Durant, and Ben Simmons are too good in that regard for it not to. Yeah. And and I, I mean, in a matchup, a theoretical matchup against the Bucs, you'd be, f- from an interior defense perspective, you'd be less worried about getting, you know, bossed by Brooke Lopez on the block than you would just about having the second layer of defense hold up against Giannis. Exactly. And, you know, they can make Claxton his primary, I guess, if they really wanted to. What they've done in matchups this season is have Ben Simmons basically start on him and then have Claxton there on the back line to help and then Durant as well. Maybe that's enough. I I think that it's, it's hard to argue so far with the results. Like they've been, in terms of process and results, I think really, really stout as an interior defensive team. And that's going to need to hold up, I think, if they're actually going to do what we think they might be capable of doing. Yeah, and personnel-wise, defensively, I just think like it's 
it's believable. You know what I mean? This isn't like, okay, team that was trashed defensively, like uh, pulling a rabbit out of the hat and you look at the roster and you're like, how are they doing? Like, like the defensive personnel is there. The defensive toolkit is there. If they're healthy, there's, there's no reason they can't be and they won't be in the mix. No doubt. All right. I think that's it for us today. This is when we play the uh, Kamala Harris. We did it, Joe, for us keeping it under, not only under an hour, under 50 minutes. Good for us. Good for Starting us. Starting the new year off right, and surely this trend will continue yeah. and will never go over an hour again. Our New Year's resolution was to uh, keep shows under 50 minutes. No, it wasn't. It was actually to start them on time. All right. And I'll sign us off with a fan shout out the first of 2023. This one goes out to Aiden Opazo, who reached out on Instagram a few weeks ago to say that he loves the quality content and he loves that the show is just two dudes respectfully talking about basketball. No unnecessary bells and whistles, no histrionics. Also said that a nightmare 20 hour commute from London to Ottawa that was delayed due to winter storms because it does not take 20 hours to get from London to Ottawa said that commute was made better by Pound the Rock helping him pass the time and keeping him sane. Aiden from London, we appreciate you. We're glad to hear that um, Pound the Rock can help in any way uh, get you through nightmare commutes and any other annoying times in life. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, so you've been listening for a few years, so sincerely appreciate that. Just like we appreciate all of our listeners who uh, allow us to do what we do. Usual call out. For all of our listeners out there who haven't reached out before, please do. We'd love to hear from you and would love to reward you with a shout out at the end of one of our shows. So hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Find me on Instagram like Aiden did at Joe underscore 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 cash or even email Wolfon and I at joe.wolfon at the score.com or joseph.cacharo at the score.com. For now, we're signing off. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock.